Exodus chapter 4, uh, we left off at the burning bush last week, and uh, it was, it was a, a pointed sentence where we left off. So I'm just going to kind of backtrack a little bit. Uh, if you're familiar with the story, you know, Moses is that, you know, God asks him to take his sandals off because he's on holy ground, and he tells him, you're going to go deliver the people out of Israel, and Moses hems and haws three or four different times about why he can't do it, how he's not qualified, etc., and uh, God says, what's that in your hand in chapter 4? And he says, it's a rod, it's a staff, you know, it's what I've been using to lead the, the sheep around in the wilderness. So he has him throw it down, and it turns into a serpent, a, a miracle that God will reuse as we, as we move on next week. Um, but at the last verse that we read last week, it says, and Moses took the staff or the rod of God in his hand. So we saw how God can take the little things that we have or what we think is just our everyday uh, experience or task that God has placed us in, but it can be anointed. And that's kind of been a running theme that we've been talking about here at church for a little while now, which is cool. So we transition there. Now that Moses has taken the staff of God in his hand, in verse 21 is where we pick it up. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So first off, it always works out that I, when I'm like, oh yeah, I think I can teach that week. It always falls on a really challenging verse, like God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And as we'll see in a couple verses, I get like these really bloody, weird things that happen. Um, so there's these weird things. So it's always fun to study these things because we're like, okay, this is just out of the blue. I will harden his heart. And uh, I've, read, I've read a lot of people, and a lot of people try to uh, change God's motivation here and say, well, he doesn't really mean I'm going to harden his heart. What he means is, and then they start to basically make excuses for what God says. And anytime God is speaking and we start to interpret what God says, I get a little uncomfortable with that. So um, we'll talk about this because I think it's important that we look at what this means. Um, you know, it says in, in Romans <clears throat> chapter 9, if you'll turn there, I'm not going to have a lot of verses up tonight because there's large chunks that I would like to look at. Um, so Romans chapter 9, you might be familiar with this. It's when God's talking about Israel, and when we're, when we have to be careful when we're quick to say, well, God would never do that, or that's not fair. If God, if God really means what he says, then that's not fair. Um, in Romans chapter 9, verse 14, um, if you're not there, if you can just listen, Paul's talking about, you know, what has God done with Israel? Now that the Gentiles are a part of the church... Does that mean that Israel doesn't matter anymore? He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, which is in Exodus chapter 9, we'll get there. This is what he's quoting. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And when we think of Pharaoh, that's the last thing we think of, that Pharaoh is actually going to proclaim the name of God throughout the, all, all the earth and that God would show his mighty power, power through Pharaoh. But when you look at it from God's perspective, that's exactly 
what he's doing. He brings Pharaoh onto the scene so that he can show his mighty power by setting his people free from that slavery, that bondage. So uh, as it goes on, it says in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And then Paul presenting the argument, he also expects a rebuttal from everybody, which you guys might be thinking the very same thing. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? You know, in other words, well, if Pharaoh had no choice, then that's not fair. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And he goes on and talks about how we, as Gentiles, are beneficiaries of the fact that God allowed or intended for the Israelites' heart to be hardened so that the message of the Messiah could then go to the Gentiles. So I, as I was reading this, I found it really interesting because I, at first glance, I'm like, that's, that's harsh, God. To Pharaoh is just, you know, he's just this innocent guy, you know, minding his own business, and God hardens his heart, and now he's kicking, you know, kicking the slaves while they're down and taking their straw away from their bricks, and you guys know the story. But I had to kind of check myself from that attitude because I am a very recipient of God's sovereignty. And we talked about it with Jacob and Esau, how it says that, you know, the Bible says stuff like he loved Jacob but hated Esau. And you're like, what? That doesn't make sense. I don't like that about God. Uh, But I found an interesting quote, uh, and I'll paraphrase it. It's from Augustine. It says, God does not harden hearts by inciting people to evil. He hardens hearts by withholding his mercy from an already evil people. Let me say that again, just so you kind of track with that. God does not harden hearts by inciting people to evil. In other words, innocent bystander walking along, God says, do evil things. And you're like, okay, I can't, can't resist God's will in this. It's his will. It's going to happen regardless. It says he hardens hearts by withholding his mercy from an already evil people. When people are making decisions that are already contrary to God's will, there comes a point when they continually resist, continually resist, continually resist, and they make that path. And it says in Romans 1 that God gives them over, which is a scary thing to think about. We don't like to think about that. It's probably not a nice message for tonight, and I apologize. Um, But there comes a point where God says, you know, if you want this, if you want to go in this rebellious direction, then you can go. You know what, the, the thing that gets me through that thought is that all things work together for the good, those who are called according to his purpose, whom he foreknew. God is sovereign over all those things. Even when people are willfully uh, rebelling against God, he can still work that out for his plan. So when we step out of these verses, I know we've only gotten through one verse so far, but we'll get through the rest, I promise. Um, this is just, I don't want, I like to tackle hard things. You know, I, I, I don't like to gloss over things like this because I, I need to know. Because this is, these are questions that I have, to, just to be honest with you. When I read this stuff, I don't go, it's in the Bible, so it makes sense. I have to kind of figure it out. You know? And God puts those things in there for us to figure out, I think. Uh, he likes to, uh, to reveal the unsearchable things. And we'll, we'll see a verse like that a little bit later on. But um, it's, it's cool to think about that. Because as Gentiles, as he says in, uh, if you, you're already in Romans, I think, right? Romans 9, Romans 11, if you flip over a little bit. Tying that all together. <clears throat> Sorry. He says in verse 30, 30, yeah. 
For, uh, sorry, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. Whose disobedience? He's talking about Israel. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience. What? That doesn't make sense. That he may have mercy on all. That's a pretty cool verse. And then Paul just explodes with joy and says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So, in a a sense, you could say that God is allowing or permitting the free will of mankind uh, to get to this fever pitch, to get to a point as we look now and it seems like God is losing when we look at the news, we can see things like, man, we're, you know, why are things so terrible? How is evil prevailing as we see it through our you know, temporal minds? And God says, just like he said to Pharaoh, this stuff is being raised up so that I can show my power. So that just when you think it's the point of no return, God intervenes and does the miraculous. And I find that comforting, especially when I see stuff like this, because the... Uh, the thing that Pharaoh is doing here is he's enslaving people. You saw at the beginning of Exodus that a king came and he didn't know who Joseph was, so he put all the Israelites into bondage. Bad decision. <laughs> you know, the, the Israelites came because of Joseph who had saved the Egyptians. Okay? Like, and when we step back from this entire picture in Exodus, we have to remember that there's an entire redemptive plan going on here. So if Pharaoh didn't harden his heart, then God couldn't move mightily in the, in the lives of the Israelites to set them free from bondage, and they never would have gotten to the promised land. And if they hadn't gotten to the promised land, then there would be no special people and a special place and, the, and Israel being a light to the Gentiles. As we saw in Romans 11, it says that we are able to obtain mercy because of their disobedience. They rejected their Messiah. We come in. And now it says, but don't worry, their disobedience means that they're also going to obtain mercy from us. So we as the Gentiles are called as a light back. Even though Israel was called as a light to the Gentiles, we as Gentiles essentially are called back as a light to show Israel their true Messiah. Isn't that cool? I find that interesting. So I hope I've alleviated a little bit of your concern when you see God say things like, I will harden his heart. The first, I believe it's the first five plagues, it says that Pharaoh hardens his, hardened his heart. And then there's, a, I think, two of them basically say his heart was hardened, essentially. The heart was to, to blame. <laughs> his heart had already started down that path of hardening. And then you see God, it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So we don't have to be afraid that God is going to harden our hearts unbeknownst to us. Because when we're seeking God's will, and we're in Christ, his will is our will. Our heart is we, give, we receive a new heart, it says in Ezekiel, um, that he takes the stony heart out of our flesh and gives us a heart of flesh, and that he's going to write his law on our heart and on our mind. So when we're talking about this, we're not talking about the saints here, but there are a lot of exhortations in the New Testament where you know, the, the apostles and stuff are saying, don't let your hearts become hard. And there are two things that, that um, if you look at Hebrews, this is a huge thing. Because we can parallel Hebrews by, when it's saying, enter into the rest. 
That's the idea of, of that promised land. And you see a lot of quoting back to the Old Testament. And it says in Hebrews 3, it talks about, don't have an, uh, a hardened heart, of un, un, a hard, unbelieving heart. And it says, don't let your heart become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So that's how the enemy tries to get our hearts to become hard. It's not that God tries to harden our hearts as saints, but he gets us to, uh, to doubt, to have unbelief, and our hearts themselves can get hardened by the situations and the things in the world that we encounter, and then also by the deceitfulness of sin. We think that sin is going to satisfy something that God is holding out on us, and we become enslaved, just like the children of Israel had become. So let's move on. Um, it says, what I think is interesting, he talks about my firstborn son, Israel. That's the first time we really see God talking about Israel in that way. When we hear God's firstborn son, who do we think of? We think of Jesus, right? But he talks about Israel, and I've really been interested by this because I find that when you, when you look at the entire scope of Scripture, you see Adam and Eve put in this garden, this kind of protective thing, and obviously there was no sin or evil at the time, but you, you see the Garden of Eden as a... As a a place, a safe haven where God's presence was, where they walked with God. And somehow, they still messed up, even though they were surrounded by goodness. So God starts again, and he takes Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And then we see him, he takes him into the promised land. Through Moses, we're going to see he puts all of these restrictions on them to essentially keep the evil out, to hedge around his people, to keep them pure and holy. And guess what? Even that, didn't work. And it's not because God was like, oh man, plan B still doesn't work. He's, he was doing that to prove that there was no way that we could be made right of, of our own works. There was nothing that could keep that insidious evil, that sinful nature, once the fall had taken place, from uh, leading us to death. So, you know what he said? Okay, Israel's my firstborn son. I'm going to send my son. And when you look at when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, which we looked at a couple Sundays back, he was fulfilling all of those things that Israel was, Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. When Jesus is combating the devil, he's quoting Deuteronomy. He's quoting the very, te- you know, the very things that were written at that time. He was fulfilling all the things that Israel, his firstborn son, could not fulfill. So that's really interesting as well. So um, we see this idea that he's saying you need to, to consecrate allow my firstborn son, Israel, to go out to serve me so they could be set apart for me. And if you refuse, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. So he throws down an ultimatum, essentially. And he's telling Moses to go to Pharaoh to say this. And now we get another three verses, which are really interesting. At a lodging place on the way the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Okay, we'll read on, see if it gets better. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin. And touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And then the story goes on and he meets Aaron and they're happy. They're hugging and kissing. And you're like, okay, where did these three verses come from? What is this doing here? I find it really interesting that this is interjected here. And just when I think the Bible is going to zig, it zags. You know, We're like, okay, nice little narrative. I'm pretty sure in the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, there was no scene that incorporated this little narrative, right? That wouldn't have been allowed. Um, But why does it say that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death? I don't know, to be honest with you. Because essentially, wouldn't you say that God 
God told Moses to go and set the people free, right? I mean, that was who Moses was. He was raised up from the beginning. Pharaoh was raised up to show God's power. Moses was raised up as his deliverer. And now is God saying, wait a minute, I messed up. I'm going to kill you now. I don't know. That's a little, it's a little hard to understand. But what is happening here that would cause this type of anger towards Moses? What I think is interesting is that it says that she circumcises her son, and it seems that that appeases God. So uh, when I was reading this, I found it interesting that it's dele- this story, or these three verses, they come right after God said, set my firstborn son free so that he could serve me, and that if you refuse, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Then you see Moses going to deliver the people from Israel with a son that is not circumcised. So if you put those two things together, what you see is Moses is about to go and try to fulfill God's plan without himself consecrating his own son. How could he go to Pharaoh and say, you need to allow God's firstborn to come and serve me? You need, you know, and, and we see that when they go out. When they make the exodus, he says, you know, the, you know, after the firstborn and the Passover and all that stuff, he says, the firstborn of every flock is, go, is for me. And you dedicate the firstborn. He doesn't require us to kill our firstborn, but he says, you dedicate them to me. You consecrate the firstborn, the first out of the womb, to me. So now we have this child that hasn't been circumcised yet, and Moses is a Jew. And if you remember when we were back in Genesis, I spent a whole night talking about circumcision, which was another fun night. Um, but it's online, you can listen to that, because I'm not going to spend time going into the significance there. But the idea of circumcision was a consecration, a setting apart, a cutting off of an association with this world to identify with the God of the covenant that he had made with Abraham. So we have Moses going into this situation, and whether his, we know his wife was a Midianite, and uh, maybe she wasn't comfortable with the whole circumcision thing, so she said, we'll have one child that is, one child that isn't, so we're, we can compromise. But in this situation, God calls Moses to have no compromise, and to say, how can you go in to Pharaoh and say, you need to, to let God have his people, have his children, so that they can serve him, when you yourself have a son that has not been consecrated to me. So, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a good application there. I think there's a lot of things that God has called each and every one of us to do, specifically, um, as far as like a, sp- a spiritual calling on our life, whether it's to, you know, uh, you know for Chris and Jill to, to start this church, or uh, to lead worship, or to, you know, be a testimony in your workplace, whatever it is. And because of that responsibility or that role, he's also called us to set aside things. I'm not talking just about sin, because that's, that's the no-brainer, you know, like we talked about when we were fasting. Like, sin's the first thing that should go. I'm talking about there's things that we associate as our identity, as a part of the world, you know, the world that we've lived in, whether it's the country that we live in, or it's the American dream that we've lived our entire life to pursue. There are things that oftentimes God will say, in and of themselves, they're fine, but you can't have that and give yourself completely to me to fulfill the calling I've placed on your life. And I've, had to, I've come to this crossroads. Maybe it wasn't like this where I was being, you know, I was dying and my wife had to circumcise my son to save me. But we get to this, this cross point or these crossroads with God sometimes where he says, okay, before you can go any further, you know, to fulfill my calling, we've got to do some business here. There's a couple things that I'd need you to prioritize or deprioritize from your life. And those are painful things. Um, you know, whatever it is, I think God speaks to each one of us individually. I'm not going to stand up here and act like 
everyone who is doing this should stop or that. Or, you guys know what God point puts on your life, so that's not for me to talk about. But I think it is something that we can take from this text that Moses was called to a high calling, and there could be no compromise uh, in his life. So we move on past that. And what's interesting is that we don't see uh, Moses' wife again until much later in the story. So I don't know. It doesn't, it's not clear from the text, but maybe he sends them back home at this point. Because later we'll see when they're in the wilderness that Jethro brings Moses' wife and his children to Moses. So Moses is with his brother and sister, and that's it. His wife and his children are gone. And we'll also see later on that Moses takes another wife, um, but it doesn't make any mention of his first wife. So maybe he was deserted and and Zipporah was just like, I can't handle this, so I'm out of here. We don't know. The the, the Bible doesn't say explicitly, so I won't be dogmatic about it. So verse 27, and we'll read a little bit here because the story kind of runs in a narrative from here on out. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And you see that that's exactly what God promised. He said, you, you don't think you can speak? Fine, Aaron's going to be your spokesman. So Aaron, Moses fills him in and Aaron becomes the spokesman at this point. Verse 31, this is a great verse. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. If you remember at the end of chapter 2, which was a couple weeks ago, it says, During those days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That's a comforting verse. Uh, there was some time that passed from that verse to this verse. So the children of Israel are probably like, God's not hearing our cry. And we get there sometimes as Christians where I prayed for this, this thing to, to be relieved from my life. I'm in this spiritual bondage of some kind, and it's not happening immediately. God doesn't hear me. And that is when we can allow our hearts to become hardened. And we don't understand oftentimes why that happens, but it says here they they bowed their heads in worship because from that verse is when you see God meet Moses and he's starting this whole thing with Moses that the children of Israel have no idea is going on. They don't know about a burning bush yet. They don't know that Moses is going to come and deliver them and the the Red Sea is going to part. They don't know any of that stuff. All they know is that they're in slavery and they need to be set free and the God that they've been told about since they were a child was a God who delivers and they're not seeing deliverance. So when Moses comes and he says, God has heard your cry and we're gonna, God's going to deliver you, of course, they bow their heads and worship. Isn't that awesome? The truth is that we've all been uh, recipients of the grace of a God who delivers. If we're here tonight, I believe everybody here, uh, you know, I believe I'm speaking to saints here, uh, We've all received the deliverance that God has promised, whether we feel it or not, or whether we, we like to believe it or not. Even if the situations around us don't feel like, you know, I feel like there's still shackles on me, I don't quite get this. God has delivered, and he will continue to deliver. And oftentimes, we allow those 
uh, visible, you know, the, the temporary circumstance to cloud our vision of what God has already done for us. And when we, re- when we come to a realization of what God has done, that God has sent a deliverer in Jesus Christ, we bow our heads and worship just like they did. So if, we, you know, if you're ever feeling that, and I, you know, I get this way sometimes where I just feel like, oh, man, I just don't feel that deliverance. You know, that thing that, that God says I have, he says I'm set free, you know. You will know the truth and truth will set you free. There's all these verses about freedom and liberty, but I don't feel it. I feel like I'm just like, oh, you know. A lot of you know, I always talk about this stuff, but maybe we need to bow our heads and worship God for what he's already done. And then we'll start to see those clouds part. We'll start to see those chains fall off because we're praising God for what he's already done instead of looking for God to do something special that uh, doesn't really need to be done. We just need to believe that it has been done. So, um, Chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And just a reminder here because this is an important note. Um, when it says Lord, you guys know this, capital L-O-R-D, it's Yahweh. It's his actual name that he gives Moses here. So just, I just wanted to preface that. So when he says, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Or in the actual Hebrew, it says, who is Yahweh? Who is this guy Yahweh you're talking about? Because if you got, you got to remember, Egypt, Egypt was a polytheistic uh, culture. They had the sun god. You know, they had the water god. And all the plagues, as you'll see when we get through that, is that God is attacking every single uh, element, I guess you would call it, of the gods that Egypt worshipped. He's saying, yeah, you, you thought the Nile River was a god? Well, guess what? It's not. You thought, you know, the sun was a god? Well, you're going to be dark for however many days. I forget it was. So when Moses and Aaron come, they say, it's like they're too Pharaoh, and I don't mean this in any disrespectful way. It's like they're saying, Joe, the God of Israel, says you got to let him go. Like, who's Joe? You know what I mean? Like, I've never heard of that God before. I've heard of gods. I know there are several gods here, but who is this Yahweh? Why should I listen to him? We have to remember that, you know, we don't, we have the answer, so we know the end of the story, but we have to remember, like, Pharaoh, he's basically like, why should I listen to this God that you're talking about? I have my gods, you have your gods. That's fine. Um, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the, the Lord, or it should say, I don't know who Yahweh is. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So not only do I not know your God, but why would I listen to him? And then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with this sword. So they're kind of making a case here. And I was reading this and I was like, wait, they had no intention of going three days in the wilderness. They were going to the promised land. Why does Moses say this? You know, and God even says you know, that they would come, come out into the wilderness to serve me. But it's a way of God testing Pharaoh's heart to see, would he be compassionate? Would he soften his heart to the plight of the God of the Hebrews, the people that he had enslaved? It's, he's, he's setting a, a you know, bait for Pharaoh to say, yeah, okay, three days, that's fine. And then maybe there's something to work with there. But Pharaoh hardened his heart and said, no. God gives us opportunities to show our belief. When we say, I, I'm doubting or whatever, he puts us in situations, or at least he does with me, when I'm struggling with unbelief. He puts me in situations where I have to believe. 
He doesn't just give me all this belief all of a sudden. They're like, uh, you know, I need more patience. Okay, I'm all of a sudden patient. No, he puts me in situations where I really need to learn patience. You know, that's, God likes to do that. He likes to conform us and to mold us into the image of Christ. Uh, and I think he does that even with unbelievers, in a sense. He gives them opportunities. He meets them and is sensitive to them. And he reaches out a, an olive branch, as it were, and says, here's an opportunity for you to have a relationship. Are you going to engage or are you going to reject? Even Pharaoh, who was you know, essentially the most powerful, most wicked person at the time, He's giving him a little opportunity to show compassion to Israel before he's going to come and bring all the judgment. It's it's amazing, the grace of God and the mercy of God. Uh, And in verse 4, But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. He's like, you're wasting my time. And not only that, everybody's watching outside trying to find out what's going on, and they're not working. So get out of here and get back to work. What a dismissive attitude. Uh, The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go. And you can almost hear his, like, his mockery in there. Like, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So he's slandering Moses and Aaron. He's slandering God, and he's mocking God. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves wherever you can find it but your work will not be reduced in the least. Now, I don't think we have any masons here, but if we do, we don't make bricks with, with straw and mud anymore, I don't think. It's usually like a powdered mix and you add water and you do all your business there. Uh, but they use straw. And you see, you, I can just picture the Ten Commandments. If you've never seen the Ten Commandments, watch it this Passover. It's great. And people make fun of, like, the special effects for the time are amazing. Like, you think about it, like, how did they do this? Like, claymation, what's going on? I don't know how they do it. But, like, I just remember the one guy's like, they say, you shall make no bricks without straw. The one guy's like, bricks without straw? <laughs> He's, like, very, like, overacting, like, crazy. And then you see everybody's whipping each other and stuff. It's just really funny. But um, I just, when I read that, and you have no straw, I just picture that guy's voice in my head. I can hear it. So now you're, it's so enticed to go watch it because you're like, what is he talking about? I have no idea. So go watch it. It's great. You just have to set aside about four hours though, because it's super long. Uh, maybe two sittings would be worth it. Uh, the taskmasters were urgent saying, complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. The taskmasters were also accountable to Pharaoh here. So they're like, we got to make sure our output doesn't diminish. So we have to drive the slaves even harder because Pharaoh's going to be mad at us. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? Isn't it interesting that they cry out to Pharaoh here? Instead of going back to God, who had promised deliverance just a few verses sooner? I don't know why they do that. They go to Pharaoh and say, can you please lighten up? Even though Moses and Aaron had come and said, God's going to deliver you. No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. 
And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. So they're saying, your taskmasters took our straw away. They don't necessarily know that it's Pharaoh that was behind the whole thing. And it's like, that's why our bricks aren't being produced. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. So when he says, let us go sacrifice to the Lord, that must ring a bell for them and be like, oh, wait, Moses and Aaron have something to do with this. They had said that we were going to go somewhere. They went into Pharaoh and now look what's happened. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So they're taking up an issue with Moses and Aaron here when Pharaoh's the one that caused the problems. They're slave master. You know, they're the king of, of Egypt that has put them into bondage. They're taking his side and saying, if it wasn't for you, Pharaoh would be laying off of us. It's your fault. And what I think is funny is that it says, You've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. They're more concerned with Pharaoh's opinion of them than being set free. Does that sound like anything familiar? I know that's my life in a lot of ways, or it was, where we would rather continue in bondage and have the approval of the higher-ups than maybe ruffle a few feathers and get freed. (laughs) You know, What's interesting, in uh, John chapter 12, Jesus talks about this type of people, when he's speaking to, and you don't have to turn it, I'll just read it for you, but um, it's John chapter 12, verses 37 and on. It says, when Jesus, I'm sorry, though he had done so many signs before them, which if you recall, Moses and Aaron performed the miracles for the the elders of Israel to show them how powerful God was and how God was going to deliver them. And they all believed and said, woohoo, God's going to rescue us, right? So they had seen the signs already. Jesus says to Israel, Though you had seen many signs before, or though, so, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And then it skips on and says, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And then it goes on and says, Many of the, th- the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I think there's a strong parallel here. These people that believed, they cared more about the Pharaoh than the, you know, or like the Pharisees in that day. Obviously, we're talking about different religions and stuff, so I don't want to step on toes, but they cared about that more than believing God that he was going to free them. I find that um, sad because I see it in a lot of people's lives. That, and it was my, my life for a few years, actually. Like, keeping things under wraps, keeping up appearances for the sake of maintaining the status quo, rather than come out with it, tell people that I was broken, that I needed help, because I was afraid of what they were going to think, or afraid that I was going to lose my reputation, when God was saying, come out of bondage. Let me set you free. That's true freedom. And the children of Israel, when things got harder, they're like, oh, forget this. The bondage wasn't that bad. When you're just a slave and you're kind of 
all right, making bricks. Guess it's going to be like this forever. I was born a slave, I'm going to die a slave. You kind of forget, you know, there's no hope. Once there's been hope put into your life, when someone says, there's a way out, you can be freed, and you say, yeah, I want that, you better expect the enemy to go full force and say, no, you can't find out what's really true. You can't find out that you're actually free. So oftentimes, you know, I I find, and I talk with people, and they're like, man, it got so hard. You know, the world's hard. (laughs) Like, being a Christian is hard. It's like, well, yeah, because the enemy's losing. And when you're losing, you fight dirty, you know? You take cheap shots. You do things. So the, the people of Israel, all of a sudden, things are getting real hard. But sometimes it gets the hardest right before there's the, the, devi, the levy breaks, in a sense. You know, like, things get really hard right when there's going to be a breakthrough, you know? And when you can see the light on the other side, it makes you press harder, or it should at least. Unfortunately, uh, Israel was a little perturbed at Moses. (laughs) Moses, uh, verse 22, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? So first it's saying, he's accusing God, then he's saying, look, I told you, you got the wrong guy. Which, last I checked, God didn't do evil to Israel, right? It was Pharaoh. Um, that did that because God had said, hey, set my people free. And Pharaoh said, no. So was it God that hardened his heart or did Pharaoh harden his heart? Yes. <laughs> um, For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Man, Moses had a pretty intimate relationship with God, right? <laughs> that he could say this to God and God wouldn't just say, you know what, Psh, somebody else. You read the Psalms, those prayers, they're not all like, God is amazing, praise the Lord. They're like, God, what have you done? You know, and people get really uncomfortable, but God wants intimacy. He wants us to go to him boldly, like it says, in a time of need. And when we need, we're not always the most courteous. <laughs> you know, when we need something, when you're desperate, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the what did you say? Well, no, I was just going to say like, Pomp and circumstance goes out the window when you're desperate for something. Like, you know, I'm going to bow and I'm going to do all these things. No, you go in and you say, God, I need this. This is not working for me, whatever the situation may be. And he says, okay, well, guess what? And what's funny about Moses is doubting and God had told him that Pharaoh was going to say no. If you go back and read, we're not going to go back and read, but he said, and Pharaoh is not going to do anything. So just deal with it. And, but I'm going to still set, him out, set you guys free. So God has to, we'll end here, God has to remind Moses who he is. This is Moses, this is God's deliverer, and he needs to be reminded even. We can't end at the last verse of chapter 5, because that's really anticlimactic when he's like, you have not not delivered your people at all, let's pray. You know, that wouldn't really work. So we're going to move, (laughs) we're going to go on and see what God has to say about the situation, and we'll close there. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out. Whose strong hand is he going to be driving them out with of this land? God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, or El Shaddai in Hebrew. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. 
I, am, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. He's reminding Moses of what's happened so far. Because when we're facing adversity, we have short-term memory. We don't remember what God has done. I know we talk about that a lot. Like We have to kind of put a, a nice little... I, I heard someone say to do a ble- make a blessings basket. And every time you've, God blesses you with something, write it down and put it in a basket. So that when you go through a hard time, you can go back to that basket and remember what God has done and how he's always proven faithful. And that's what he's doing to Moses here. He's like, hey, I got this. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord... Now, these I wills are huge, and I was going to, I thought of this after I sent out the email today, but we talk a lot about the will of God, and we're like, wait, if God's willing for people's hearts to be hardened, I don't understand that. What's God's will for my life? We talk about the will of God. Well, the title of this message, if you want a title, is the God of will, because regardless of what your will is, God's will will prevail. Not only that, but he's going to confirm it, and he says it right here. He says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. Amen, right? Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And that's going to be a recurring theme that we see even when they're set free. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. He doesn't change his tune. He doesn't say, let's try a new method. That didn't work. He says, let the people go out of this land. But Moses said, Behold, the people have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Which is essentially saying, you know, my lips are unconsecrated to you or, or they're, you know, they're profane. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge, a pep talk essentially, about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So when we look at this, we know that, you know, Egypt is such a huge type of the world. So when you, when you read that, I will bring you out, I will redeem you, God has done that. And in whatever situation you're in, he will do that, because that's who he is. He's the God of deliverance. He's the God of will. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray that you would help us to um, allow it to take root in our lives, that we would focus on the deliverance that you've given to us, even when we feel shackled and uh, that we would allow our will to align with your will. In Jesus' name, amen.